want to welcome you to the third annual Texas Tribune Fest. I can't believe we've done this three times. It gets bigger and better every time. Um, we'll be here for 60 minutes. You probably know the routine by now, but I'll go through it. We'll be here for 60 minutes, um, 40 to 45 minutes of me talking, and 15 to 20 minutes of questions from you. There are mics on either side when we get to that part. Uh, please silence your phones. If you are tweeting, uh, use hashtag Tribune Fest. Hashtag Trib Fest turns out to be some kind of a music festival in England. Uh, oh, really? So Tribune <laughs> Fest, please. Um, although I'm sure they're interested in what we're doing here in Texas. Um, uh, my guest today, as you know, is David Dewhurst. He is um, got an interesting resume. Um, a at 6'5", he's the tallest candidate on the ballot. Um, he's the only one who played basketball in college, I think, uh, University of Arizona Wildcats, um, Lamar High School in Houston. He is a veteran of the United States Air Force, of the Central Intelligence Agency, a successful businessman, a member of the Texas Rodeo Cowboy Hall of Fame. These are things that aren't on other people's resumes. Um, <laughs> Elected to the Land Commission in 1998 to Lieutenant Governor in 2002 and a candidate this year for Lieutenant Governor once again. Thank you so much for being here. Really Delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's, let's, just, let's just dive right into this. Sure. The last year and a half of your political life has been particularly interesting. Um, you had the Senate race that you lost to Ted Cruz. Um, you had a um, loyal guy in your campaign um, go offline. Um, you had a bumpy session. Um, you're welcome to disagree with any of these. Um, we had what is on my note card here as the Wendy thing. Um, the Allen Police Department phone call. And now you've got three guys who endorsed you in your last race challenging you in a Republican primary. That's something you don't find on everybody else's in resume either. Um, let's go through this. How does, how does this race look? What from the last year and a half has turned the race that you're in today, the race that you're in today? Well, I'm looking forward to the, to, to the race. It's, um, I'm having a good time. I learned a number of things last year. Go with your instincts. Do what you think's right. Uh, don't necessarily always listen to your consultants. Um, <laughs> and we're having a, um, a lot of fun. We're going all around the state of Texas. We're listening to people which I've done for years and years in the past. In fact, we've got a video out right now that's called Listening. And when you, when you go in, in people's homes and houses and you listen to them, it's amazing what you hear. I will differ with you. I think this is probably one of the most successful conservative sessions. Mm -hmm. If you take the three specials and the regular that we've had in arguably decades. So I'm proud of the session. Okay. Let me go back for a second. You said there were places, you implied there were places where you didn't follow your instincts that you might have in the last race. What were some of those things? What, what should you have done that you kind of knew at the time you should be doing? First of all, um, my wife keeps saying, David, just get out there and meet people. At the end of the day, um, you're better just talking to people, being with people than you may be on TV or, um, or if you're giving a regular speech. And so that's what I've been doing. Um, I wanted to go out last year. Uh, we had a big argument with the campaign. They wanted me to stay back and raise money, which I did. Uh, but I, at the end of the day, this race isn't about David Dewhurst, and it's not about the other people in the race. This race is about you all, ladies and gentlemen. It's about what is in your best interest. And so that's what I've made this race about. I'm going out and talking to people everywhere about what is, what is that you want. Here's what I've done for you in the past. 
And here's what I'm going to do for you in the future. And, and what are your thoughts? Let's talk about this famous phone call. Um, you called the Allen Police Department on a Saturday night? Saturday night. Um, a relative is in jail for taking a bag of groceries without paying for it, accused of taking a bag of groceries without paying for it. And you made a phone call that most advisors would tell a person in public office not to make, and the phone call is awkward. It's 12 minutes. It's kind of painful. Can you talk about it a little bit? You know, I've, um, I've said to the press, <laughs> I wish I'd made it 45 seconds. Um, but at the end of the day, what kind of relative? I'm not the kind of relative that if you get a call from your stepsister and she's bawling and then you talk to her son and he's in tears and they're telling me it was a mistake and what did they do? How did they go post bail? And so that's, that's what I did. I said over and over again that I didn't want any special treatment. Follow all your rules. But you also said over and over again that you were the lieutenant governor of Texas and that you were the favorite of law enforcement and made it clear to the officer on the other end of the call that, you know, I have a VIP on the line. Did you, is this something that an officer well, should have done? The, at the end of the day, I didn't want to um, beguile this officer and have me think it was a crank call when I said, hi, this is David Dewhurst. I'm the concerned uncle. And so I told him who I am. And I also told him, follow all your rules. Don't expect any special treatment. And uh, the police department put out a statement that said, look, this call is similar to calls we get every day from concerned relatives. Mm -hmm. If um, it's a Saturday, if somebody gets thrown in jail tonight, what do you do? How do you, what do you learn here? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm belaboring this a little bit because I think we're going to be hearing this commercial, or we're going to be hearing a lot of this phone call yeah. sometime between now and March 4th, I'm, I'm guessing. You know, we may, but this is the political season, and if that's all that other people have to talk about, I'm concerned about the fact that we're at a crossroads. And we've taken the state from, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity of, of your hiring me in the past to take this state from a good state to a great state. But with 1,200, 1,300 new people coming in every day into this state, we either keep growing and keep this state the most pro-growth, pro-family state in the country. Or else we're going to start sliding. And our kids, we're not going to have the same opportunity. Our children are not going to have the same opportunity that we've had just, just recently. And, and that's not right. So that's what I'm going to be focused on. Okay. Uh, the legislative session was interesting. The, the, the regular session was, you know, a lot of people, both in the press and outside the press, were calling it the kumbaya session. Everybody was getting along. It was... You know, the partisan things that had marked some previous sessions weren't front and center. We had, you know, things like the water bill and a transportation bill and budget, just the stuff of government, sort of like a Disney movie. And it was followed on a double bill by a couple of Quentin Tarantino features. Um, <laughs> we got, you know, we got, we got um, this, I guess, two of, the, two of the four issues, arguably three of the four issues that were up in the special sessions were all the most intensely partisan issues you can take up. One, start with redistricting. Second, start with an issue, um, the women's clinics, abortion and all of that, that is divisive in large measure, not completely, but along party lines. Uh, so you know that this is in for a fight. Knowing all of that and looking in the rearview mirror a little bit at how it unfolded and how the filibuster unfolded and all of that, what would you do differently? Did you, did you guys effectively build a podium for Wendy Davis? No. 
No, no. Uh, you know perfectly well that in the Senate rules, in the Senate rules that any that any one person can filibuster any bill. Um, at the end of the day, we broke the filibuster, and look at the scoreboard. Protecting women's health and protecting the lives of babies won. And when you look at the, the components of the bill, at the end of the day, uh, when you had the International Socialist Movement, and when you had MoveOn.org, and when you had all these paid protesters there, uh, the major thing that um, we should have done is had more security in the Capitol. Uh, and we did, we did a week and a half later, and look at the scoreboard, the bill passed, the biggest omnibus pro-life bill in the country. But keep in mind, uh, this is a partisan wedge issue for the Democrats. Uh, when I've talked to... It's a partisan wedge for the Republicans, too, isn't it? It's a, no, no, it's a protection of women's health and a protection of babies' lives. 27 other states, 27 other states, Ross... It's not require, a partisan issue for Republicans? Uh, 27 other states require ambulatory surgical centers. And... And 34 other states had earlier uh, deadlines for abortions than the state of Texas. So you won the issue. Did you, could you have handled the politics differently? I mean, you know, Wendy Davis is sort of their star of the moment. Um, apparently, doesn't matter if you're Ted Cruz or Wendy Davis, talking a long time makes you a star. But, um, <laughs> whatever works, right? Uh, but could you, have, could you have sequenced this? You're in charge of the process. Could right. you have sequenced this in a different way and said, you know, letter filibuster, we'll come back tomorrow morning and sign this bill. Let's go ahead and pass the transportation bill out. Let's go ahead and pass the criminal justice bill out. Let's let her talk into the night. It'll be another quiet filibuster. Most people will never don't pay much attention to these things. We'll come back tomorrow morning. Perry will call us back. Bada bing, bada boom. Well, first of all, I had no guarantee that Perry was going to call us back. And at the end of the day, I don't back off from a fight. And I don't back off from mob rule. And so I asked the House, uh, I sent them a message Thursday-ish, uh, of the, um, the previous Thursday before the Tuesday, which was the last day of the session. And I said, make sure you get us the bill back by Sunday noon, early afternoon, because we've got a firm 24-hour layout period. And I also said that if you don't, you're going to put the bill into filibuster range. Uh, I didn't think there were anybody, that there was anyone probably, probably today that could have filibustered for 36 hours, but they could filibuster for 12 hours or 13 hours. And so I made that clear to the House. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, they couldn't get it back to us in time. So I had to make a decision on, on whether I backed down or I went forward. I went forward. And I brought all the Republican senators together. And that morning, the Tuesday before we started at 11-ish in the morning, I said, we have a decision to make. We're either going to end forever the precedent to have a filibuster by going directly to Senator Hager, in essence calling the previous question, right. or we're going to have to try and break the filibuster. And that requires my sustaining three points of order. And overwhelmingly, regardless of what people, <laughs> interestingly, are saying now, um, everyone was for protecting the precedent to be able to, to filibuster and to break Wendy Davis's filibuster. So that's what we did. It took us 11 hours. One of the conversations in your primary, and, and you know, it's hard to tell whether this is an Austin bubble question or, or whether voters care about it, is about Senate rules and mm -hmm. about filibusters. One of these, the two-thirds rule gets a lot of conversation, at least inside kind of the, you know, the friendly confines here. 
I know that Dan Patrick has talked about, and Jerry Pat- Patterson to some extent has talked about this in the primary fight. Do you expect the rules in the Senate to change? And, and, and I'll ask that question um, a little bit hypothetically. Under you, will they change? Would they change if one of the other guys was elected? Well, I'm going to leave that question for the other fellows. The two-thirds rule has been a senator's rule. It's not my rule. It's been a senator's rule since, if memory serves, in the 1870s. And the senators can keep it or change it. What I've said over and over again, I can play it square around. I can have a uh, calendars committee or we can have the two-thirds rule. The frustration, at the end of the day, my responsibility is to you all, to the people of Texas. And just using the pro-life bill, uh, third-party polling that I've seen over and over again, the majority, 60-plus percent, of Texans consider themselves pro-life. At the end of the day, the, pro, the two-thirds rule has been, as I've understood it, meant to bring people together. If you've got concentrated efforts and the, the will of the majority is blocked time after time, then that calls into question whether or not the time is passed for the two-thirds rule. Uh, but again, that's a senator's decision. So if, if you were advising them or if you were arguing a point, would you say keep it or lose it? Well, what I have done is on controversial bills that I knew that we could not reach an agreement on, right. such as redistricting, I have not had a, a blocker bill, a two-thirds rule, in the special sessions. Right. And so I have made that decision in order to move legislation forward because there was no other way to do it. We had to change the rules in order to even bring up uh, photo voter ID, for instance. And even though we modeled it after Indiana and Georgia, both of their voter ID bills have been declared constitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. We still had a partisan fight on our hands. Let me ask this in a way it might be asked in a broader way in a Republican primary. In a body that is nearly, not quite, but nearly two-thirds Republican, clearly a majority Republican, why shouldn't Republicans be able to run everything? Why should, they, why should there be Democratic chairs? Why should there be, you won the election, it's over, roll? I think that's a good question. I think that's a good question. We've had a, again, we've had a tradition in Texas since the 1870s. And again, this is a senator's rule. But because over the last, in the last, in the special session in 2011, and the three special sessions this year in 2013, knowing that we had controversial bills, we had redistricting both times, um, I made the decision not to have a blocker bill because we would have been stymied. The will of the majority, overwhelming will of the majority, would have been would have been thwarted. Now that doesn't. In all those cases, I brought Democrats in. I tried to. We had we had Republicans. We had Democrats. I had meeting after meeting uh, on each of these bills, trying to reach a fair agreement, mm-hmm. but couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Do you think those are traditions are worth keeping, or do you think the Republicans ought to? You know, we won. We should be controlling this. If at the end of the day... I I guess the flip of that is if and when the Democrats ever ever do it, are the Republicans willing to suffer the consequences? And I think that's a fair question. That's something that we've asked ourselves. But at the end of the day, if the will of the the majority is is thwarted over and over again, then I think the, um, the efficacy of this rule, the time has come to change it. 
If I had, if we had been having this conversation 18 months ago, you would have been telling me the reasons why you wanted to be in the United States Senate. Um, we have a senator on the ballot this year in your party who's um, seeing a little heat these days, John Cornyn. Do you still want to be U.S. senator? Did you think about running for this seat? And if not, why not? I mean, 18 months ago, that was your, David Dewhurst is appointed at federal office. Why not? 18 months ago, I wanted to have a chance to go in and use the, the leadership and the experience which I've gained here in Texas to, to make a difference in Washington. Uh, I'm so much more disappointed today in Washington and frustrated with Washington than I was 18 months ago, certainly over what's transpired over the last 18 months. Texas has a model, has a model that, that every time I talk to people from other states and even in Washington, um, I'm incredulous. Why in the world? Uh, I mean, I'm a businessman. I'm a career businessman. I know how to grow companies. I know how to grow the state. Why in the world wouldn't you adopt a growth model? All this arguing about taxes and cutting, why don't you grow your economy? Our economy this year is growing, according to Susan Combs, 3.4%, over twice the rate of the rest of the country. And, and so that's the expertise which I wanted to take. I came uh, after the election. I, um, I did a lot of soul searching. I prayed about it with my wife. And that's why I came in this session so enthusiastic. I wanted to make sure that we kept our state number one, and we are. I wanted to make sure that we addressed the infrastructure needs with our population, ladies and gentlemen, doubling between today with 26 million people and 50 years from now, 50 million people. We're going to have to double our water. We're going to have to double our, our highways. We're going to have to double our electricity. And so that's what I've undertaken this year, that and a lot of other pieces of legislation. Having decided to stay here, the seat that's been blocked since 2000, you know, Rick Perry was up there, everybody supported him, but he was young and healthy and so kind of stunted the growth in the org chart. Um, the governor's job is open. Why aren't you running for that? I'm running for re-election because I think I can help keep Texas number one more as lieutenant governor than as governor. I'm not taking anything away from the office, but uh, when you're lieutenant governor, you've got your hands on the throttle and you're working directly one-on-one -on -one with 31 senators, and so that's something I know I can do. Again, we're, we're at a crossroads. If we don't keep growing, if we don't keep this state um, jobs being, being generated, our children are going to have less opportunities than, than we've had. I've seen company after company get to be number one and start that slide down. I don't want to see that happen. Secondly, we're being attacked at the same time by the Obama administration. They've got their eyes on Texas because they've woken up to the fact that if they can just turn Texas blue, uh, the chances of Republicans winning the White House in the next few generations is, is very, very slim. And so uh, that's why I've been working. That's why I've been traveling. That's why I've, I've been working with people. Uh, the Texas is going to turn blue over my dead, cold political body. Well, talk about it in, in you know, political terms. Do you think it's even possible? Do you think it's an even, even a threat? I mean, it's a great fundraising line. It turns out to be a great fundraising line for both parties. You know, look, we're going to try to turn Texas blue, send money. Look, they're trying to turn Texas blue, send money. I mean, we've yeah. both read those mailers. Um, do they have a real, realistic chance at it? 
Is this an I actual don't, threat? I don't think so today. I don't think so. But the worst, uh, but if we get complacent, maybe. And so we can't be complacent. The majority of people in the state consider themselves, 60-plus percent, consider themselves to be conservative. And, and if we're complacent, yeah, it could happen. Because at the end of the day, we're not, elections aren't decided by, by on a per capita basis. It's decided by who turns out. Right. And increasingly, we're seeing fewer and fewer people turn out for our Elections. So if the if the Democrats get all of their base turned out and our base is is complacent, um, yeah, we could have a problem. So does Greg Abbott? Is he threatened at all by a Wendy Davis? No. In the governor's race? No. He's not. I'm not. No. I mean, she's. I respect her. I respect her. Um, I don't agree with her, but I respect her. She's a she's a bright, hardworking lady. Talk about your race a little bit. Um, You've got these three guys who all endorsed you against Cruz, all lined up. Mm-hmm. One of them, you know, kind of came to your side and um, was working closely enough with you that you named him chairman of a major committee in the Senate, Dan Patrick's mm-hmm. Education Committee. Um, you've known Jerry Patterson since you guys ran against each other in 1998. Right. Maybe before that. Right. Um, Todd Staples served in the, in the Senate under you. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on here? Why are these guys running? What, you know, how do you handicap this race? I'm going to win. Well, walk me through it. I'm going to win. The, um, Just one step. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll give you a couple of steps. Uh, I'm going to outwork them. I'm going to remind people in Texas why they love Texas, that, that we have taken this state from being a good state to a great state. We're number one in every economic category. And that's not – there are other factors, but – People at the end of, the end of the day want to be able to take care of themselves. They want to be able to take care of their families. They want to be able to, to, to give their children as much or more in the form of opportunities as we've had growing up. And that's what I've helped create. And that's why I want to keep Texas growing. Um, again, this is all about you all. This is not about me. This is not about the other three fellows. What's in your best interest? But in a and primary, how does that differentiate you from the other three fellows? Because I know how to grow the state. I've shown it. What is the number one uh, predictor for future behavior? Past behavior. And I know how to solve, I know how to keep this state moving. I know how to to continue to improve our public education because we've got to have a well-trained workforce. I know how to keep fighting against Obamacare. I've led the effort here in Texas uh, in the legislature to uh, not expand Medicaid and Obamacare and not go into the exchanges. So so I have fought for the, the things that the people of Texas, the vast majority, want. Is the rate of uninsured, since you brought up Obamacare, is the rate of uninsured in the state is the highest, as I understand it, we have the highest number of uninsured people, we have the highest percentage of uninsured people. Whether you get there through Obamacare or not, is that an issue in a Republican primary? And even if it's not as lieutenant governor, is there anything that you see the state actually doing anything about here? Oh. I mean, it's been, it's been the highest for a long time. Well, it's been the it, highest. Past, for- past behavior indicates future success. And that's exactly why I've been working on this for the last seven or eight years. I've spent a disproportionate amount of my time working on free market solutions to health care, not 
not a Western European model like the president is pushing, not a, a, a single-payer system. Mm -hmm. But I passed Senate Bill 10 in 2009, Senate Bill 7 in 2011, another new Senate Bill 7, which, which provides incentives for doctors and hospitals to come together and improve outcomes, uh, to follow the best practices, to keep people out of the hospital. And I've, and I've been working with the Texas, both the Texas Medical Association and the Texas Hospital Association to get people to come together these free market solutions which will improve the health outcomes and save money. At the same time, we've been working since 2007 to get a block grant on our Medicaid funds because we know, we believe that we can prove that if the federal government will give us a block grant like they are some of the other states, we'll be able, because one size doesn't fit all, we'll be able to meet all of the outcomes that the federal government insists on, the health care outcomes, but we'll be able to take care of people, save money, and use a lot of that money to be able to reimburse the care uh, in emergency rooms and get more primary care for people. Do you think there's a way to shrink the numbers of uninsured in yes. Texas? And why haven't we done it? We've been, because the federal government has refused to give us a block grant. That's the only thing blocking us from shrinking that number. That's one of, that's one of, the, that's one of the ways that we can shrink the number. Right. And that's one of the ways that we've been blocked. Uh, at the same time, what I just got through describing, probably at too much length, uh, but the free market solution, Senate Bill 10, 7, and 7, that will, uh, that will reduce the uninsured in Texas. Okay. Okay. Um, let's go back to the question about the competition. How do you size these guys up? Um, they're all statewide, or two of them are statewide office holders. Um, one of them from your friendly environs in Houston. Um, who's, who's the threat here? What's this race look like? The, the, um, to the extent that there's a threat, uh, it's for some reason we don't do what we need to do in my campaign. I'm not running against these fellas. Uh, they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, I don't care whether there's three or four or one. We're going to run our campaign. And I'm going to run this campaign with my instincts. I think most people that know me think I'm a nice guy. I think most people that know me know I'm a, a very, very hard worker. I think most people that know me know that I've been leading the Senate just like I've led my company over the years. So I'm going to use leadership. I'm going to outwork people. We're going everywhere, Ross, everywhere. Uh, we're down on the Rio Grande uh, two days ago. We've, we've been going to small tea party, big tea party, women's groups, men's groups, uh, Republican groups, um, chambers of commerce, rotary clubs, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going everywhere. How big an obstacle is, you know, people have overcome this before, but I'm curious. This is an electorate that just recently chose someone else over you. What, do you have to rebuild the relationship here? I think that a lot of people don't know, and this is a phenomenon with the office of lieutenant governor. We saw it with Bullock and we saw it with others. A lot of people don't know who I am. Some do. You're not in a, a statewide ballot five times? Um, but it's still a fact. When, when I go out and talk to people, they say, I didn't know that about you. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And so I, I, there's no question. I haven't done as good of a job as I could and should over the years to, 
tell people where I'm coming from and talk about my humble roots. And that's what drives me. And to talk about the things we've done for you all, the people of Texas, um, whether it's passing, uh, protecting the integrity of elections, whether it's it's creating more access to health care by passing the model the medical malpractice tort reform bill in the country, which has created 30,000 more doctors when we're losing 1,000 doctors a year, whether it's fighting for pro-life issues, whether it's keeping Texas one of the three most frugal states in the country, three most frugal states in the country in, in, um, in per capita spending, one of the four most frugal in per capita state tax, uh, keeping this state so attractive that we've got a record number of people coming in uh, that are investing in creating jobs. We've created, you all have created, because in government, don't let people ever tell you they create jobs, all right? You create jobs. Everybody all of in you. government tells us they create jobs. I know, I know, I know. But I'm, but, but I'm telling you, we don't. I know, I, as a career business person, I know. Um, what we can do is we either create a very good business climate that attracts people to invest or we make it a bad climate. Washington's doing the latter, we're doing the former. So did voters not know this a year ago about you? I mean, what's the, what's the... I don't think a lot of... You have to gently go back and say, hey, guys, you made a mistake. No, no. No, that would be, and that's not very smart. You go back. Maybe you wouldn't phrase it (laughs) just like that. You go back, you go back, quite frankly. You're asking people who have voted against you to vote for you. Well, keep in mind. So, uh, so make the sale. Whoa, 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 whoa. With all due respect, most of the Republican primary voters have voted for me a number of times in the past. Right. And so all I'm doing is going back and saying, um, just want to emphasize, we've done this, this, and this for you. We've, um, we've, we've protected the integrity of our elections. We are fighting to keep Obamacare out of the state of Texas. We have cut your taxes over 50 times. We've cut taxes. We've reduced your taxes by almost $16 billion. We've cut your local school property taxes by a third. I want to come back in 2015 and cut local school property taxes even again. So we're, 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 putting, we're, we're letting you keep more money into your pocket. At the same time, we're fighting in order to improve our health care, to cover more people. Uh, we have made some progress this year in improving our public schools. We put a record amount of new money into our public schools. Uh, and, and we're creating a situation where you and your children have a rosy future. The last That's time, important. The last time the state came in, <clears throat> and I'm not hanging this on you in particular, I'm hanging this on everybody who was there, the last time the state came in and said, we're going to cut your property taxes, they did this tax swap with the franchise tax and some other things. And I think a lot of people came out of that exercise, a lot of property owners came out of that exercise saying, you know, my property taxes didn't go down, but these other taxes went up. And it was true mathematically at the time that that was a big cut in property taxes. Right. And it's a legitimate claim. But a lot of people didn't feel it or see it, and there was the state doesn't have any control over whether those taxes jump right back up. Since you bring this up, <clears throat> how would you cut property taxes and make it stick? Reform our tax appraisal system. Look at putting some caps on, on the growth of, of the appraisals and cut local school property taxes. Uh, our, cutting local school prop, our, our cutting local school property taxes uh, six years ago 
by a third meant that $7 billion a year of what businesses and individuals are paying, what you're paying, was transferred to the state. I warned everyone this is going to cause a structural shortfall, and it did. We would have grown out of it in a couple of years, but driving to work one day in the end of 2008, we went into a recession. Um, and, and so that took us longer to come out. But what made me mad is when the state picked up, again, $7 billion of individual homeowner taxes and business local school property taxes, bang. Uh, a lot of uh, the school districts and the appraisal districts were jumping the appraisals. And so people weren't seeing the savings. We still have that obligation. Were they the state still the appraisals, has it. Were they making, were the appraisals accurate? Or are you saying that they were jumping the appraisals to inaccurate numbers to, to make it shortfall? No, I'm saying that they were overly aggressive in raising appraisals. Um, that, that we wanted to save, I wanted, I won't talk about anyone else, I wanted that that one-third cut in your local school property taxes, which translates into 20% cut in all, roughly, approximately, 20% cut in all of your property taxes, I wanted you to be able to see more cash in your pocket. And so that was very frustrating for us. There were a lot of businesses that went through that exercise and said, you know, you're cutting property taxes for homeowners. Texas is a Texas is a and relatively businesses. Texas is a relatively low tax state, <clears throat> but it's not as low a tax state when it comes to business. They pay half of the sales tax, they pay a, a chunk of the property taxes. They got this new franchise tax on top of it. If you come back in in 2015 and say, okay, we're going to cut property taxes, I'm assuming you're not going to cut spending on education. We're not going to cut spending. We're going to continue to fund our, our public education at the level that we think is necessary uh, to, to sustain it and to, and to hold on to our good teachers. And where's the money to fund or to pay for the cut in property taxes? What are you going to replace that with? Again, my, my model is a growth model. Uh, we're growing, this state's growing. Uh, I think if you focus on cuts alone, and I'm fine with cuts. Uh, I've been involved in cutting spending repeatedly over the last uh, 10 years. I've been involved in the consolidation, uh, the elimination of some 57 different state agencies over the last 10 years. So we've tried to keep government, I'm a small government conservative. And, and I, we've tried to keep our state government as small as we can, but doing the essential things that people want it to do. Uh, I'll challenge one thing that you said, and that is uh, when you talked about uh, the uh, business taxes. We've tried to keep our business taxes as low as possible. Um, the Sharp Commission argued that with the gross receipts tax that it was almost going to balance out between, between the cut of $7 billion per year on individuals, on homeowners and businesses, local school property taxes, and what we would get from this franchise tax. I told them at the time, you're wrong on your numbers. I'm a numbers guy. You're wrong on your numbers. Well, you sure the, enough. You and the controller at the time had those yeah. numbers right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears> and so, we, and so as a result. Hmm? Have we grown out of that? Is that structural deficit gone? Uh, yes. Yes. But it's because of the growth. The growth. But we've gone back and we've still cut. I mean, this year alone, we cut um, uh, our business taxes by another, by our franchise tax 
by another 5%. So we're constantly trying to cut taxes on business and individuals so that you have more money, disposable income, and we make the state attractive to do business. There's a ledger problem. When you walk into that 2015 session and say we're going to cut property taxes by this much and we're going to make it up with this, what's in this hand? This hand is the growth in our economy. This hand is the growth in our economy and different areas where we may be able to tighten the, bu- the uh, belt. How big a cut do you think that could be? Um, you're how, how big do you you're think? getting way ahead of me. Um, I want to continue to cut local school property taxes, which means your property taxes. And that's what I will be working with Senator Williams and a number of our senators on. Is the state going to win these lawsuits on redistricting and voting rights? Are we going to be seems to be our habit that we come in with a census, we redraw the maps, and then we go to court for eight years. Um, we did it in the 90s. We did it in the 2000s. We're on our way. Um, how do you think this goes? Well, in the, in the 2000s, um, in the 2003, the state won five consecutive lawsuits, federal lawsuits, uh, against the other side on redistricting. I, I don't, uh, I don't, I, I think at the end of the day, um, there will be some changes to the Texas House and our, our congressional map, but the court's already signed off on the Senate map as, um, as meeting all, all of, the, of the constitutional, uh, uh, of, of the hurdles. Um, but um, on the redistrict, on, on the voter ID bill, this is just one more uh, log on the fire of frustration that I have with this administration and Eric Holder. Um, I was eminently involved in the photo voter ID bill. It took me four years to pass it so that finally the House had passed it. It took four years. The last session was 26 hours nonstop, and it was was slugfest. But we modeled it, as I may have mentioned just a moment ago, after Indiana and Georgia. It is eminently eminently constitutional. And to come in and forum shop, venue shop. You're talking about suing in Corpus Christi? That's right. That's right. Do you think that judge is on their side? I think there are a number of judges in Corpus Christi that are on their side. Do you think that judge is on their side? I don't know, but there are a number of judges that are on their side. Okay. Do you think the state eventually prevails in this? Yes. So Texas has this weird statistic, and I guess this is true in some other states, but generally speaking, give or take, depending on the election, actual mileage may vary, about 70% of Anglos vote Republican, about 65%, sometimes as low as 60% of Hispanics vote Democratic, 90% of blacks tend to vote Democratic. How can you change maps to maximize Republican or Democratic advantage without it becoming a racial argument at this point? I mean, it, it goes directly to race, doesn't it? Or is there a way, can you say with a straight face, we were maximizing votes for this side or that side, but this wasn't a racial thing? In, in 2003, you came in and, they, and the Republicans knocked out the remaining white Democrats. This time, the Democrats came in to the extent that they could and went after minority Republicans. Is this really about party? Is this about race? Can you see why people conflate them? Ross, um, during the entirety of our special a committee on redistricting. Uh, during the spring and going into late May of 2011, I never, I never sat in on one meeting 
with Senator Seliger or any of our senators where we talked about race. I believe that the future of the Republican Party is, depends in large part among, uh, on our reaching out and bringing everyone who's like-minded into. At the end of the day, estoy seguro que, um, que en, el, en el futuro nuestros líderes van a estar hispanos. You know, at the end of the day, our future leaders are going to be uh, Hispanics. And we've got to reach out. There's more that unites us than divides us. Let me ask you one more question. And in the meantime, there's a mic over here and a mic over there, and I'll open to audience questions um, right after this one. You've been lieutenant governor some time now. What big things, big chunks do you still want to accomplish? What's still on, what's still on your to-do list? Sure, sure. I want to see a number of the practices which we've been doing in the law so that the future legislatures do it. We have voluntarily kept our, our, our budget, our spending, at or below inflation and population growth. As a matter of fact, we're some 11% below. And I'm disappointed that I wasn't able to get that passed and into statute. Uh, but I want to do that in 2015. Uh, I want to continue to improve our schools. We've made progress this year, but We've still got way too many children that are trapped in failing schools. Last year, we had 531 schools that were failing. Now, that doesn't sound that, like that many maybe, but if I tell you that there's 315,000 children associated with those 531 schools, wow. I don't want children to have to sit for one, two, three, four, five, six years. It's one of the reasons why we push down the time that parents can come in and turn the school around. Uh, but we've got to do a better job with developing our workforce and our children. I happen to be someone that, that believes that there's a, a real value in having a little bit of a hammer on our school districts to say, look, uh, we have a program. It may be limited, but school choice. So that if you don't turn this school around, we're not going to let these children stay. So I want to push for something not dissimilar to what Florida has been able to do. I want to see more transparency in government. And again, our future depends on our continuing to be able to grow. And so I want to put a lot of emphasis, uh, because it's not just one element. There's not one lever. Uh, it's a combination of you've got to keep your, your road systems good, and you've got to be able to keep your neighborhood safe, and you've got to have a well-trained workforce, and you've got to be able to make this state more attractive than the other states. But, but, That's how you grow. But you've argued, so you've, so you've argued that you've done those things. No, I've done a lot of those, but we've got to continue. We've got to do even more. So... so I guess a voter would be, you know, and I guess I've, I've heard this from some of your opponents. Why haven't you done that yet? I mean, there's. Oh, a, I've done that. I, right. We've done that. But my whole point, and I, I guess I'm not explaining it very well, because if we stop right now, if we stop right now, because uh, the dogs caught the car, because people are have they have woken up, they're coming to Texas for opportunity. They're not coming to Texas uh, to turn Texas blue. They don't want to change things. They're coming here so, so they can buy in to our Texas miracle, to our dream. So they're coming here. And if we don't continue growing, we're going to get behind the eight ball, and we're going to start to slide. Great. I want to thank you very much for coming I want to thank in. you. Let's take some questions sure. from these guys. Uh, there's sure. a mic over here, a mic over here, and the lights are blinding me. So we'll start over here with this guy. Yes, sir. This one? Apparently. 
Assistant Governor, um, I want to ask you, uh, we kind of brushed off from uh, what Mr. Andrew was asking you, how abortion is not a political wedge issue for the Republican Party when the Republican Party across the country time and time again puts forward anti-choice legislation in the state legislatures and is the one continuing to attack a woman's right to choose? A woman still has the right to choose. And you might be surprised, I said it earlier, but maybe I, I wasn't clear. 34 other states, including California and New York, have deadlines for abortion earlier than Texas had at six months, by going from six months to five months. On ambulatory surgical centers, 27 other states do it. At the end of the day, uh, why wouldn't you want a backup generator in case there was an election, uh, um, an operation, and the power went down? So, I'm, I'm, I respect your opinion, but I differ with you because this, this to me, was about protecting women's health and protecting the unborn in the six months down to five months. Most people I talked to, and I, I, I went out on purpose and talked to a lot of pro-choice men and women. And when I walked them through the bill, they said, well, okay, five months is plenty of time to make a decision. Okay, I understand why you want a, um, an ambulatory surgical center. So did you, I respect your opinion. Did you put any stock in the argument that, um, that the provisions of this bill, other than those two in particular, would shut down or have the effect of shutting down access to women's health services that did not include abortion? No, that's a, I don't think at the end of the day that's going to turn out to be a reality. We've heard some talk about that. And, um, and again, at the end of the day, we want people to, to have access to care and to their rights under the Constitution. Um, okay, one over here. Hi, my name is Kayla Lusk. I Hi. am a senior at Rockwell High School. And... Earlier you made a statement that you were increasing funding for public schools. Well, I'm a part of the public school system, and I've been told that funding has been cut. And I'm in the fine arts department. I'm in the band. And being in the band, you find out that the funding has been cut, and then you have to raise funds to be able to do the stuff that you normally do, like go to football games. And that has been cut. So I would like for you to explain to me how you have increased funding in schools, because I have found that it's been cut. Well, with all due respect, l let me give you the numbers. Uh, when, when we came uh, in the downturn in the recession, the Obama administration decided to put out stimulus dollars to all the states. We talked about whether or not we would accept those stimulus dollars in Texas, and we made a decision we would because, after all, 8% of those dollars were generated by you all. And that provided some of the funding, and, and that permitted us to, to, to keep an increase in our public education funding for the, in the 2009 session, which was 2010 and 11. When we came in in 2011, although a lot of the country had come out, our economy had not come out of the recession. So you may have read about a $20 billion shortfall, $25 billion shortfall. And we had to put money in to replace that. So we had a small, not a big, not a big increase, a small increase. This year we came in and we put $3.4 billion. 
and the Democrat members, the Republican members, uh, will all agree that, that we made a substantial increase in our funding in public education. What I can do is, um, the lights are bright, but somewhere here, uh, I, there are a couple of people on my staff. I give you a card. We can give you the numbers from, from what we call our legislative budget board, and I'll be glad why, to show Why are we you. seeing cuts like that, though? I mean, when you and I were in high school, you, you know, the band, the school bought the band uniforms. You know, now a lot of kids buy their own band uniforms or, yeah. or parts of them. I mean, why does, you know, what's going on there? Um, we don't try and micromanage the, the individual schools. Right. Uh, I don't know in your case. But at the, at the end of the day, a lot of superintendents have told me that they're focused on, on using this new money to hold on to their good teachers and expand some of their programs. And if you have to buy your band uniform, I'm sorry, but that's, that's a decision by your local school, school superintendent and the board. Come on over here. And, uh, yes, my name is uh, Corey. I'm a senior at uh, UTSA. I had a quick question for you, uh, Lieutenant Governor. Uh -huh. You mentioned earlier that you're a numbers man, you're a businessman, and uh, I just uh, wanted to maybe you explain the rationale behind uh, fighting against the expansion of Medicaid, which puts 2.6 million, uh, million people uninsured, puts that burden on top of hospitals, and also the $15 billion in federal money that we left on the table for not expanding. I'll explain it this way. Our Medicaid program right now is broken. And adding, the estimates are 1.6 million, 2 million new people onto a program that's broken. Doesn't make any sense. Um, right now, we have a universal health care system. It's called the emergency room. I'm not recommending that. I'm not recommending that. But... But we, we have that, and that's why we need to replace that. And that's why I have been working in order to, to put in free market reforms. And I, and I talked about three different bills. Each one of those, and all three of those, which would have the effect of, of freeing up money to cover more people. But uh, the, um, I felt strongly, and, and Governor Perry felt strongly, that... At one point, we had 26 states that weren't, weren't opting into the expansion of Medicaid, and we were optimistic that the administration would consider giving us block grants so we could cover people uh, and, and provide more coverage uh, and better results within the block grant. So you, it, that, that overweighed, I mean, if I remember the numbers right, it was if the state invests $15 billion over 10 years, it draws down something on the order of $100 billion. It's a lot of money. Um, that wouldn't have done more good even in a, in a flawed Medicaid program than leaving it on the table? Well, let me address your comment and yours, sir. Um, some of my Republican senators started talking along that line. Right. So I went up to Washington and I talked to most of the members of our, of our Texas delegation. And there, I became convinced there is no chance that, that they're going to continue to fund a program that's losing a trillion dollars a year. And so at the end of the day, we're going to have to come up with a system that, 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 is, that makes sense and gives more flexibility 
to the states so we can cover the people just like you want and just like I want. Did you feel because like because the answer and let me be very clear, the answer is not sending people to the emergency room. The at the end of the day, I put in program after program after program in our Medicaid program uh, that provides primary care. That's how you if you can keep people healthy, and that's what the intent of these bills is. If you keep them healthy, you give them primary care. Then then they have less serious. The acuity is less. Um, and we're able to cover more people with uh, the same amount of money. A note for the audience. We were watching this. Were we watching a policy fight or a political fight? Policy. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Jessica Luther. People may know me from the Twitter. Um, I had a question about what you just said about HB2 and that being about women's health, the ASC regulations. During the first special session, uh, Whole Woman's Health created a map where they showed that uh, if SB5, which was the bill during first session, passed, which did as HB2, that all but five clinics being in Houston, San Antonio, Austin, and the Dallas-Fort Worth area would shut down. You retweeted that picture and said that that was the goal of SB5. So I'm not, I'm not understanding now how you're sitting up on the stage explaining to us that this was about women's health when you, I mean, I have a screenshot, that you specifically tweeted that out with the message that your goal was to shut down abortion in the state. My goal has always been to, to protect women's health and, and where possible to... You Let him answer. My goal has always been to protect women's health and to also, where possible, when you go from, um, from six months to five months, the, the numbers that, that we have, and they could be wrong, that you would arguably save 350, 450 additional babies. Um, and that's been my goal. I, didn't, I asked actually about the ASC for right. that. And, and the answer to that is we're not, seeing, we're not seeing all of those facilities being shut down. The bill hasn't gone into effect yet. It's, it's, going, it's going into staggered effect right now. Do you think any of them will shut down? Huh? Do you think any of them will shut down? Oh, there, there may be some, but uh, we, what we did, the reason why you're saying, ma'am, uh, uh, the reason why you said what you did is because we gave a fairly long period uh, for these abortion centers to be able to go ahead and uh, rebuild, um, put an emergency generator, um, widen the doors so they can move a gurney. To come up to standard. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And you think they will? I think a lot of them will. I, I, all I know is we've got 63,000 abortions each year. And based upon the, on the revenue that is generated for a lot of these, there should be the cash uh, to go ahead and, and, and fix these uh, different facilities. Pennsylvania had a very similar law, and, and virtually all of their abortion facilities were turned into ambulatory surgical centers. Yes, ma'am, over here. Yes. Um, I you can turn that down if it's easier. I'm a little shorter. I appreciate that you're coming out to listen to people and that you're here today, but who determines which groups you go out to listen to, such as the Tea Party, and then when does the, the um, idea, when people come to express their ideas, become mob rule? I bet you you could answer that. It's a polite mob. <laughs> 
It becomes mob rule when people break, break, try, intentionally try and stop uh, a democracy and, and the functioning of government. Uh, I will go and um, I've always prided myself for having one of the most open-door policies uh, in the legislature. Uh, if you've got a group that you'd like for me to come by and visit, uh, just give me your card. We'll give you a card. I'll be glad uh, to come by and to visit with you. Um, at, uh, we're going to where we think there are, <clears throat> and this is a primary, the next election is a primary. And so we're, we're going to where we think there are Republican primary voters around the state. So what prevents what happened in June from happening again? Well, I mean, is, it, is this going to unfold the same way again? Did we just learn a new tool here for getting our way in the Senate? Or is, is this, uh, there's some things in place now that prevent that from happening? You're talking about the mob rule? Um, you can call it the mob rule. What, that night? Well, I think that um, it was a surprise to a number of us that um, you'd have seven, 8,000 people in the uh, Capitol, and you'd have such a uh, unruly uh, mob. Uh, we had uh, my, my communications director was standing right next to some of the organizers with the International Socialist Organization that were tweeting out instructions, slow down, don't do anything now, they may try and clear the gallery. But that's all within their rights, right? That, that's within their rights. Um, but at the same time, it's also within the rights of a democratic body to be able to uh, clear people out if they're not going to follow the rules. The rules of the Senate, and we were very, very clear, um, you know, listen, you're here to listen, that's great. If you want to um, demonstrate, go outside, but we have a procedure going on right here. Okay. Over here. Yes, sir. My name is Rick Shu. I'm a businessman from Dallas, Texas. Yes, sir. I actually had a question about Medicaid, Mr. Lieutenant Governor. You're going to make this our last question, by the way. Yeah. There's a gentleman that already took that from me, so I just wanted to sort of expand on Obamacare a little bit, if I may. Um, in my 38 years, I have never seen a law that has passed with such resistance, and it's an aftermath where you are not allowing it to take root, calling it a failure before it could even have a chance to breathe. And I'm just wondering at what point if more states are doing Medicaid expansion and opening up for exchanges and more people are getting insured and this thing is working, then what does, with all due respect, sir, you and Governor Perry do in the state of Texas, do you embrace it at that point or do you still stand on ideological principle? At what point do you just accept it? The, uh, I suppose at some point, uh, down the road, if we're not able to change the, the, the uh, Obamacare, we're not able to um, eliminate it, change it, replace it, um, then regrettably it will be in force. But i got to tell you, I, I, I see this differently. I have talked to so many business people that are, that are, uh, that are concerned about their businesses. I was talking to a restaurant owner just the other day that's not going to open his second business because, because of the cost under Obamacare. I've talked to so many people that have been laid off from 40 hours a week down to 29 uh, hours. And, 
in all of the, I mean, that's collateral damage. I mean, these people, I mean, at the end of the day, I start off by saying this isn't about me, this is about you all. And, and my objective is to provide affordable, accessible health care for as many people as we can. And I don't think Obama is the answer to do that. Um, a lot of you all in this room that responded to that one question, I assume you disagree with me on, um, on uh, either pro-life, pro-choice, but at the end of the day, we all want more accessible, affordable care. I'm for that, 100%. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent so much time. I wouldn't have passed these bills. But, but, but what I see is, is the, the public is getting hurt with this. We're going to get hurt as a state by simply doubling our Medicaid ro uh, roles without doing substantial um, improvements, reform to Medicaid. That's my concern. If I could say, I would love to see some of the PL and some of the paperwork that dictates those decisions because personally, I think half of that is a self fulfilling prophecy. Right. It's um, just me. We are out of time. Thank you. David Dehurst, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you. Um, there's a break between classes. Go find your next thing. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Great.